I, that, that was the highlight of my refereeing career. There you go. I'm James Zug, and this is Outside the Glass. Before we get started today, I just wanted to thank everybody again for subscribing to Outside the Glass. Uh, today we've got uh, Derek Niederman, and uh, Derek was a, a legendary guy, especially in the 70s and 80s, uh, covering the game of squash as a, uh, as a reporter for Squash News, uh, the predecessor to Squash Magazine, as well as uh, refereeing uh, matches. Uh, he famously uh, refereed um, some of the sort of uh, uh, greatest matches in U.S. squash history. Derek now lives in Charleston, but uh, I bumped into him uh, a year and a half ago at the National Singles um, in, uh, in Philadelphia. We were at the Philadelphia Cricket Club, and we were uh, doing the interview in a room, one of the squash offices there, and... On one of the walls, uh, uh, it, it, it abuts uh, one of the squash courts, and so you'll hear um, the distant uh, thumping of the ball um, hitting the front wall of the court. We even uh, had a brief interruption from Chris McClintock, one of my fellow staff members on Squash Magazine. Anyway, uh, it sort of adds a nice little touch of, uh, of uh, sort of realism that, you know, we were doing this interview during a, a squash tournament. So enjoy. And I, I grew up in Connecticut and I was away at school and I hated every single minute of being away at school. I, I won't, that, that's just the way but it was. We won't say which school. We won't, but... we won't because my passion was so severe. However, uh, with uh, the mellowing of years and the awareness of, of some things, maybe I wasn't appreciative at the time. I said, well, you know, I did pick up squash there. So Squash made a bit, not to get sappy in the yeah. first minute of this podcast, but Squash has made a difference in my life. So how, how bad can those memories be? If I remember my first time, I was probably pretty lousy. And by the way, I do remember I was wearing moccasins, not Squash sneakers. And I don't remember why that was. <laughs> That's awesome. Wow. <laughs> um, that, the next question I ask is, what was your best win and your worst loss? I think my best win was... Besides today. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> yes, I did finally beat Tom Bador in softball. Uh, it took a 3-4 match to do it. So uh, I've never administered his first loss of a tournament. <laughs> <laughs> but I did administer a loss to Charlie Kahn mm -hmm. uh, when I was 35. And he was actually good then. I mean, he was, he was always good, don't get me wrong, but... He may have been the best of the brothers. Uh, by that time, uh, Sharif had waned a little bit. You, you know, winning British Opens and you know North American, whatever it takes takes. You get tired of that. Charlie never reached those heights, but yeah. I beat him in a Legends event uh, in uh, Toronto uh, in 1990. I guess it would have been by definition because I just turned 35, and I beat him in five. And I was uh, pretty excited about that. I didn't expect I'd beaten a few people, a couple of people, to get there. Yeah. But that put me into the main draw where I could lose to Sharif on the glass court because I didn't, couldn't see a thing. But we played. I played Charlie on a uh, a club court, right. conventional court, and I beat him in overtime in the fifth. So wow. I was happy about the win. I was happy about the circumstances. That was back when the the pro Harbaugh tour had these uh, legends draws attached to the the main open draw. Well, this was though no, this was a separate event. This would have been a, um, a, a I'm, I'm searching for the right acronym. I, I would say PSA, but of course it, it was wasn't. A w, PSA. It, it w, was a uh, WPSA w event. WSA, yeah. It was a WPSA event held in the Sheraton Ballroom in Toronto. Yeah. That was the main event, right. and actually. But the legends was was also there. Right? The, but the legends was a was a was a oh, sidetrack. Yes, yeah, exactly, yes, yeah. we came along for the ride, right. as it were. Yeah. And yeah. it was funny. Greg Zaff. Now the memories are coming back. He had his best win because he beat Talbot in the final. Yes, I think Mark's back was a little bit ailing, but Mark was such a great sport. He never yeah. he, he never admits to anything like that. But Greg beat him in the final. Greg's toughest match was in the round of 16, I believe, against Charlie Kahn, who played. And, I, and Greg beat him in five. And I think, as I recall, Greg said, and, and by the way, everybody knows Greg, but he was my doubles partner for years in Boston. Uh, he, he said, God damn it. He, 
Derek beat him. <laughs> I better beat him. Yeah, I better beat, I better him. beat him. I better beat him too. So that's a um, that was a good win. A worst loss. Jeez, I hate to stick anybody. It was probably you know probably during my first couple years of play when I was a freshman in college. I had some back problems. I didn't play the whole season, and I lost to a couple guys uh, that I demolished two years later. Is all I can remember. Uh, so it's not that they were bad players. Maybe that was my arc yeah. uh, of improvement. Right. But I remember walk, going up to Harvard and walking all over the place, looking for something, getting lost, and, and having no legs the next day, and having Jeff Wygan sort of chip serve me. I've never had somebody ace me as much. So I, I don't know if that should be my worst loss. You know, Jeff was a decent player in his own right, but... Uh, the, the, I did it with style, so I think it, it's not just the loss; it, it's the videotape that no one ever will see that it embarrasses me to right. this day. In your head, yeah, yeah. Um, who was your coach at, uh, at Yale? I had two coaches. Actually, my first coach was John Skillman. Oh, you, you, were, you were there at the end I of was, Skillman's... I was there for the end of John Skillman's tenure. Right. And, of course, he's best known, I think, today by even by uh, modern college players as the, for the Skillman Award, the Sportsmanship Award. And I um, never won that. I don't think there was one. I'm not sure I would have. I don't think, not, I don't think I would have won. He was alive, of course. Yeah. And, and I think, actually, he died... Uh, within maybe two years of my graduation, I, I graduated in 76, and I think he died in either 77 or 78. And in any event, he was my coach in squash and tennis, because I played three years of both at, at Yale. And I think, apropos of your first question, when did you start? I think I started Yale as a tennis player and left as a squash player. I, I was maybe a number five player on tennis. I got as high as number three. Uh, by modern standards, I probably would be number 15 because, let's face it, they, these, these kids can really play now. But in those days, you could make, take a stab at doing both. So I did both, and he retired in 75, and Steve Gurney started in 76. I think he was there for eight years before ceding to Dave Talbot, who so first what, what been was, there forever. Uh, what was Skillman like as a, as a mentor, <laughs> as a coach, as a... Well, he had, I think a lot of people felt, not, not without justification, that he sort of mailed it in in his last few years. Now, my father, who was a physician, would bring me aside and say, Derek, the man was very ill. You know, th th he died of cancer. And I think he was masking a, a great deal of physical strife at the time, if that's the right word. But in, in any event... Uh, he had a one-style-fits-all uh, style of coaching that modern coaches would abhor. And I think in the softball game, there's a lot more to the change-up, finding a different way to win. You can make somebody look like a hero in the first game and beat him in the second game by a couple of strategic adjustments. Tactics. Yeah. It is, Skillman wasn't into that, and, and to the extent that he wasn't, it was to his discredit. But I think, frankly, he was so good at his style, which was to volley everything. Remember, he had great, before my time, he had great, great teams, intercollegiate champions routinely, and the book always was on him that he could take his intercollegiate champion and just shut him out. And we're talking about shutting him out in hardball, right? And he's old. And he's old, however, however old he was. Now, having said that, I was only on the court with him once, and I was amazed at what a good ball he struck. And even that, at age, even that age, yeah. And that sounds that may sound silly. He was a professional champion. Right. He, he was the best there was at his game, and, and yeah. by some measure. Now, he, he, for example, Barnaby, uh, a name that we, would be always mentioned in the context of Skillman because they knew each other. For, uh, and they were the same era. They were yeah. the same era. Well, my last. Uh, intercollegiate match. Year. It was my last. Yes. Yeah. So that was the Harvard Yale match of 1976 was the last match for both uh, me and Jack Barnett. Wow. If <laughs> no one else would put it that way. Did anybody? <laughs> did anybody do a? Was there a ceremony? Or? Yes, we did honor him in some respect. I, uh, the details escape mm -hmm. me. Uh, we lost the match six three, which for us at that time was a pretty close effort with uh, Harvard. But let the truth be told. 
I think at least five of the, those six wins were in straight games. So the, I don't think the team match was ever in question. But mm. he would, uh, Skillman was you know, far and away a better player than Barnaby, but he right. didn't approach coaching with the same zeal or, or you know, professorial uh, acumen. But he, uh, so, yes, he struck a good ball. He would... Um, I mean, that was his main thing was about volleying. He said he wanted you to volley every ball you could. That's right. So did, did that – I knew that because he was my coach. Did, did that I reputation that from, go – Well, I, I knew it from reading his book. Okay. And and from talking to guys who, who knew him, who played them, you know. Right. That now, that's all well and good, but anybody can read that nowadays and understand that, well, what if, what if, he, what if that's not his thing? Yeah. There must be more than one route to success, mustn't there? <laughs> and we know that the answer is yes. So that doesn't – that uh, I, I suppose is a strike against him. But I'll tell you one thing that occurs to me. I, I did win my match, um, and we'll keep this nameless as well. I won my match uh, in, in 1976, and Skillman was not the coach then anymore, by the way. You know, he was just watching. Yeah. And if you remember the Yale facilities of that era, it took a little bit of effort to watch. I think I, I say I won to a capacity crowd, but then if the sentence were completed, it would be a capacity crowd of, 30, right. <laughs> okay, straining, and Barnaby and Dave Fish had the little window slot uh, down below, so this was people watching from above, right. but Skillman was one of them, and by the way, he didn't need to see much, uh, this is a point in his favor, he would tell me things uh, like, oh, he would say, Derek, all you need to do is hit that shot, and I said, oh yeah, that's what I would do, and he said, no, you wouldn't, here's what you would do, and he, he was... He was right that sometimes I played the, I, I should just hit the obvious shot because it's in my re- repertoire and I could score with it, as opposed to second-guessing the position of the opponent. And he said, no, that's going to win, you know, nine times out of ten. You, right. you want more than that? Right. And, of course, I got less than that. Uh, but he would see through that little, what are we, we're, I'm making it with my hands right now, window. four yeah. inches by four inches. It right. wasn't substantially larger than that. But he had a great eye for the game, even though his eyes themselves were failing. So that was pretty remarkable. Anyway, he came after my match, which I won 15-6, um, 15-10, 18-16. So I was getting dicey there, and I was lucky to, to pull it out. He said, I, I received a number of congratulations. The team match had not yet been decided, so you know it was a good moment. He looked at me, and, and with an honesty that only John Stillman could muster, he said, Derek, that's the worst number one Harvard has ever had. <laughs> and, and you know, as, as visions of Briggs and Niederhofer and, and who knows from, from years past, you know, the, the World War play, I didn't know them. I, I couldn't, I didn't, I didn't have any ready answer for that, is all I can say. <laughs> That's so deflating. I think I won. I thought it was pretty funny. Uh, well, you know, sometimes uh, you can play somebody and make them look bad. Right. And I know uh, from the softball, in uh, times when I don't have my legs under me, I'm perfectly capable, or, or I, I, I make a you know, strategically flawed approach to the match. I know I'm capable of making somebody look really good. That's right. So it, it, it's always a duality to it. Yeah. You know, play, you, you can't see one match and judge player A and player B necessarily. Right. Yeah. But, but he, he felt, I guess maybe now that I think about it, the, the, it's, the, his claim was even more damning. Is that if, he's really saying, if you could have done that, then he must have been the worst. But anyway, <laughs> that does stay with me. But our relationship was good. You know, he, he was my coach, as I said, yeah, on the tennis, tennis court as well. A, as well. And yeah. he was no more hands-on in, in tennis than he was the squash. The main difference being that he didn't have to view it through the 4 by 4 little window <laughs> rather than walking upstairs. Right. <laughs> wow. Yeah. What was uh, Steve Gurney like? Well, Steve, uh, you know, my I only had, I only had one year with you Steve, only had one year. so yeah. it was uh, it was hard to say. I remember, uh, I have a couple memories. We arrived up for the Princeton match. Uh, he had a new uh, dietary regimen he was trying out. He said, "No, the way to do it is to have this meal. I have this like, I'll say milkshake. It wasn't that, but it was something you drank." And we'll, we'll do that, and he, he wants a, the, our stomachs empty for the match. And I don't think that that 
has held up. But remember, the training meal was a steak and eggs thing totally. in the in the 70s. So so we we know how far things have come in terms of what you put down. Now I do remember he was talking about French toast. He was the first person who ever said that French toast was a great breakfast choice. And I was delighted to hear that because I enjoyed stuffing myself with French toast and it had never dawned on me that it could be a good thing. So I, I'm not sure the rasher bacon was uh, went in. But anyway, I, I had both. So he gave me liberty there, but we arrived at Princeton, I'm going to say three hours before the match. And maybe nowadays I would like that at age 62. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I come to think of it as I, as I say it. I, Sure, of course. What's the problem with that? You arrive three to three hours early. You should be three hours early. But as a 21-year-old, that didn't work at all. Well, you, you get nervous. Well, it, we had nothing to do right. at, at, at... This is at Jadwin. And if, if people know Jadwin, it's just a big... It just felt like a big cavern to me, you know? And I didn't have... I don't think I ever won down there, except oh, I, I did win a tennis match uh, my senior year. I think I was playing at number seven, and we played upstairs on the linoleum, and I was able to hook serve a guy, slice serve a guy, to beat him in straight sets. So I, I didn't go empty-handed. You were I was, yeah, I wasn't O for Jadwin. No, it was an indoor. It was, oh, in, it was indoor. Yeah, it was the, the, the top level, like the basketball level. Right, 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 we we right, played right, at. Right, right. Yeah, I played a guy named Weller Evans, who then became like the ATP tour director. I don't know. He was something with the ATP years later. And that was his worst loss ever. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. He was none too happy. They had a good tennis team. Uh, They were much better than we were. uh, But that was was a a decent win. Anyway, Princeton was tough. I played uh, Tommy Page, uh, who, of course, you uh, know know well. Now, you weren't the same class at Episcopal. No, and I didn't even go to Episcopal. Okay, well. But he was a 70... He graduated in 73, 75. Okay. All right, so you weren't the same class at Episcopal because you didn't go there in the first place. Well, that settles it, doesn't it? <laughs> so uh, Tommy beat me. Uh, he beat me 16, 14, 16, 15, 15, 12, which was a pretty good showing for me. But I re- the thing I remember about that match was two things. One, he sort of hit a 10 in the overtime in the second, and no one knew it, and I was too scared to point out, I think that ball grazed, it was one of those things that, and I had a, a couple people on the tennis team were there, they must have had a, a reason, I don't remember what it was, but they were down there. This is at Jadwin. At Jadwin, they said, Derek, that ball was down. So I, th- I think but there I there were did, no referees. No, no this referees. Is, this is the whole point. Exactly. There, you, you monitored, you adjudicated yourself. Exactly, and it was one of these slivers, it, it barely hit, but I looked at it and said, that was a little funny, and I, I'm not sure I could have convinced him that it was down because I was busy trying to convince myself what had happened. Uh, and I say that not about Tommy, it's about anybody. You, you know, you hit a ball like that. And so maybe maybe a let was the right call. But uh, all I know was in the eyes of some. We finished up, and I was bagged. I just had all the squash I wanted. He was bouncing around. His brother David stopped by afterwards. Now, David went to Episcopal, right? So, well, they all did. Yeah, yeah, they all did. Yeah. So they went, oh, let's have a hit. And I, said, oh, I'm, and I looked at him and said, I'm a little tired. He said, oh, you shouldn't be tired. And I'm thinking, okay, okay. You just beat me three zip. I gave it my all. And uh, Dave Benjamin and Norm Peck were down there at the time. Uh, they, they were um, affectionately called Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Tweedledee and Tweedledum by uh, one of the, uh, <laughs> the amateur circuit players at the time. They were very nice to me. And I remember they knew that Tommy was going to beat me. But they looked at it. And I, in, in, in a preface that I really considered genuine, they said, you know, Derek, good luck. And that meant a lot to me because I thought they meant it. You know? They, they really they, they knew I was screwed. And for, for those who your audience who don't remember the late great Tommy Page, his, you know, his time was all too brief. I, I, did he reach age 45? I don't know. He, no, he died he, at 44. He died at 44, okay. So it was right in there. And he may have been at Princeton for one year and one year only. Yeah. So not that they uh, didn't have great players. Somebody else might have beaten me. But as I think about it, on, on that subject, their top three players were Tommy Page, uh, Arif Sarfraz and Bob Callahan, none of whom are, are with us at this moment. So they had a great team. Uh, I I won't say I was close to any of them, 
but I certainly remember the camaraderie we had, and Bob and I, of course, stayed in touch for years and years after. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so after you graduated, uh, you you soon became a leading uh, guy off court. You were still playing, obviously, but you were you were you became a referee, and and so tell me tell me about that, and and and, and uh, I want to get to. Maybe your most famous mash to referee. Okay, sure. From the '80s, but what you know, what was that like as a referee? And, and do you have any good memories, bad memories? <laughs> well, uh, for your audience, just so you know, I, I'm I. We're doing. We're talking today at a time when I feel really rusty with the whole concept of refereeing, and not sure that I understand the rules of this game well enough to referee at the highest levels, certainly. I do, I do my refereeing that I'm asked to do, or required to do, and I try to do it without complaint. And I hope that I don't elicit too many complaints from the people who are out there. Uh, but I, I got into it as a, just as a way of contributing with the Boston Open, which was spearheaded primarily by uh, Tom Poor and Lenny Bernheimer, but also with an able supporting cast of the likes of Sandy Tierney and Hugh McCall and Herb Gross and a number of people who got this tournament going in, I'll, I'll say, the early 70s. They, I think it may have been 1970 was the first year, I'm not positive. And by way of perspective, I, I, my first year in the Boston area was the fall of 76. Uh, I was a graduate student uh, at MIT at the time. So I, I kept up my squash during the, it wasn't the best, those were graduate school, it doesn't turn out to be great for your squash, it turns out, who knew, but uh, I did keep it up, and, and you know, it was my way of contributing, I'm not a meeting sort of guy, I suggest, you know, I'm, I don't, I won't say I don't understand the, the mechanics of organizing a tournament, I do, but these guys understood it better, and so this was a way of making a contribution, and my main memory of refereeing is how difficult and tiring it is. And I think back to one particular evening. I don't know the matches that I was refereeing, uh, but I do know that there was a four-match slate at the Cyclorama, the old facility. And, and, and again, this is one of those places where you dump a portable court into it. it people wouldn't think of the Grand Central Terminal as being the, the modern one. Right. This one was a more primitive court. It wasn't as well lit. This was the almost an experimental time, really, although yeah. people didn't think of it that way. It was all we knew. Yeah, that's right. But you, you really couldn't pick up the ball very well, and we didn't have a white ball or anything. Right. So uh, it, w it was hard, and it was, so it was, uh, uh, those remarks were, were from a player's perspective, but it was also hard from a referee's perspective yeah. because you just you were uh, pushed back in the gallery a little bit. Where were you sitting? I, I adopted different perspectives with the different, uh, you know, pluses and minuses. And I, in some cases, I was right up there at the ground level, and then in some cases, I wanted to elevate a little bit, and, and and so I was maybe two or three rows back. So I was speaking as a disembodied voice from the gallery, you know. And I did three out of the four matches. Of uh, that this one evening, I don't remember whether any of them were particularly long or particularly controversial or wearing in and of themselves. But I can tell you that if you if your first question, as opposed to your best one, if you had asked me what my best or deepest night of sleep was, <laughs> career, it was after that night. There are no morning matches I had to wake up for. I wasn't playing. I don't think they had them. But, uh, I, I was completely wiped out. Because the the level of concentration that's required and the the light dark contrast that you had to fight through and your eyes are working, but you're so intent on what you're doing that you're unaware. Come to think of it, that would be a good idea. I wish I could play and be unaware of the toll that the circumstances were taking on my body. I, I, that doesn't happen, I'm afraid. But in this case, I just persisted. After all, I, maybe I could have palmed the third. The, my, my third match, the final match of the evening off on somebody else. But again, this was something I felt I should do. Mm -hmm. And um, if I was going to be writing up the event uh, afterwards, yeah. then maybe yeah. it, it's good to see it, although yeah. you have different perspective. But had you asked about, there were a couple particular matches. Yeah. So th this is where I did uh, the lion's share of my refereeing. 
one match was the Edwards uh, Bowditch final. This is the first year Ned won it. He he beat Clive. Uh, Caldwell uh, the second time around in a very easy final. This one was not so easy, but it, Ned was up it, two. It, it was like uh, eighteen seventeen, right? Yes, it was eighteen. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, right. Not not so easy, indeed. We agree on that. And well, I'll get to that. But but the route to eighteen seventeen the fifth was highly unusual because it included two love, eight love. All right. So you're Ned Edwards. You're up eight, two love, eight love. And either there was a point that Bodish didn't like, and, and people in your audience may, may not remember Steve Bodish, but he was mercurial, he was quite a character. Uh, he has been called oddly lovable. Uh, I, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure I'd go that far, but the oddly part I'm, I'm with, maybe he was a prince of a guy, I don't know, but he, he was very demonstrative and something he didn't like and he hit the ball out of court, and we had, took a while to find it. And as a referee, I, I feel as though I should have done what I was entitled to do at the time, uh, which would have given me the chance to save for the you know, first and only time in my refereeing career, eight minus one. That really was the score. But, you know, it's, it's eight love. Uh, you know, it's eight, it's eight love. Isn't that enough of a penalty? Well, he won the game, obviously, because you, know, you don't get to eighteen seventeen in the fifth without coming back. And so he did, and they had a very um, hotly contested point where Ned sort of flailed at a shot. Uh, maybe he got it, maybe he didn't. And uh, Bodish played, you know, played it perforce, and then all of a sudden, Ned was sweeping a, uh, a backhand cross-court sort of semi-volley by him, and it all happened lickety-split. And I can tell you that two people came up to me afterwards. Uh, many, pe- many people came up. I had a lot of conversations. But I had two people come up to me telling me, just say, just so you know, I saw that ball. So they, I don't remember who they were, but they were presenting me with the, the definitive word on what happened. And one of those two said it was up, and one of the other said it was down. So, doesn't that say at all? I have no idea whether it was right call, but I, it was too, it was too tough. And I don't remember what the um, judges maybe would have we would have played a lot. I don't know, but it was a harrowing match from a referee's perspective because it was. Let's be honest: if you're a referee and somebody's up two love, eight love, do you really? Let, the crowd says, "Oh, let's let's see more squash," or that's the U.S. Open. They say, "Oh, let's see more tennis." If you're refing a match, come on, you want the match to be over, and you just hope that you're you're seeing things with an even keel, and you're not facilitating the abrupt end of the match, right? So I think we can be candid here. The other match which went the route was, of course, the Mark Talbot uh, Jahangir match, the one time that Mark beat him. It's sort of the match that everybody remembers. Certainly, everybody in Boston remembers because it happened there, but. I believe that the, their career tally was something like eight and one. Maybe you know better than I. Yeah, it, 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 whatever it was, it was something and one. That's right. Can we agree on that? That's right. Yeah. And uh, Jahangir, I've been in New York uh, the previous year and wasn't able to see the final, uh, but Jahangir just mauled him, absolutely annihilated him. Three games single figure. I don't think Mark saw 10. Again, I wasn't there, but that was the backdrop. But it was, as I recall, that was played, that match was played on a conventional court, not the triple glass court. So they went here and they played a long match. They were giving no quarter. Uh, they, they did they did, as I recall, I don't know if they played double bounces intently, but we had to stop play a couple times. And, oh, no, I don't think so. Uh, that was the nature of the match. It was extremely competitive, but it, it it was a lion that went out like a lamb because, as I recall, Jahangir sort of he had a couple weakish backhand sidewall fronts that made the sidewall part, but not the front wall part. Uh, if you you know count the ten as <laughs> part of the front wall that made the ten, but. Uh, so I didn't have to make any calls to decide that, for which I was immensely grateful. But the gallery, you know, the hometown, if you will, extremely pro-Talbot gallery, 
not that he was a hometowner in any real sense, but uh, the, the crowd was solidly behind Mark. They didn't care how it ended. I was sort of relieved, and then Jahangir after that went back to his winning ways against Mark. But that was, that was a big, big deal, and I didn't realize at that time how many, on how many occasions I would look back and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I wrecked that match. It's sort of forgotten now. After all, it is, what, 32 years ago plus. So, you know, that's, that's how old it was. Nonetheless, that would have been a career refereeing highlight. You know, I'll offer one more because we mentioned Clive Caldwell and Tommy Page. And I just, this had just come up yesterday. I'd forgotten all about this, but I refereed the two of them at the Boston Open when it was held at Hemingway. We'd also talked about the Harvard program. The Open started at uh, Hemingway Gymnasium. Now, of course, uh, the, the walls of the building are still there, but there are no squash courts inside. That's a, a sobering moment. I went there once to see a bunch of you know, regular gym apparatus there. Seems sacrilegious, but anyway, uh, uh, Tommy was up two love, ten love. And as, as Dave Barry would say, I'm not making this up. Uh, two love, ten love. And I don't know what happened. You know, Clive was tenacious. You know how it is in a match when you're in that position. Maybe you're just surprised to be as winning as easily as you are. Uh, and the question is, will anything change? And I don't think there was a soul in the gallery, or on the, on the court for that matter, who thought something was going to change. But change it did. You probably saw that coming. <laughs> oh, yeah, and, and Tommy won the third game 15-3. How about that? No, that's not why I'm telling the story. And when they assumed uh, positions to, uh, to begin the fourth game, Tommy was serving and Clive was receiving. And I, as the referee, said, uh, said um, guys, just, just to be accurate about this, Clive should be serving. And they looked and they were just dumbfounded. And that was the most genuine moment where the players were just humans, uh, you know, appreciating the same circumstance that had bewildered the crowd, they themselves found it hard to believe that the match was still going, and that's how it was presented. I thought that was just riotous. And Clive went on to win the match, as you probably figured out. And he, he won the Boston Open a couple times. Um, I don't, that was that's right. I don't think he... he no, no, he, he didn't win it that year. Yeah. He, he won it... Oh, you know, I hesitate to say when he won it. Uh, it was well; it was in the seventies, obviously. Amazing. Yeah, that moment with Mark uh, and Jahangir, that was you know a real special moment. A thousand people there. I mean, the atmosphere must have been pretty electric and pretty uh, exciting to be kind of man- managing that that yes. that match. Yes, it, it was, and I didn't have to do any particular heavy lifting. In, mm-hmm. in other words, there wasn't. Any controversial moment, maybe that maybe the players would remember otherwise, but uh, for the most part, well, you know, they 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 played pretty clean squash. Let's face it. I talked about how intense it was. Yes, it's so. And, and if they ran full tilt and swung at a ball and didn't know whether it might have bounced a second time, they're still pl- they're playing everything. And you know, the the tour really was of two minds about that. You know. It may seem odd to hear now, but I heard on fairly good authority that there were vocal opinions registered that, no, if we're a professional sport, now we're in the realm of baseball, we're in the realm of football, where you don't say, excuse me, he actually tagged me, I felt it. I, they, so you don't go, those are team sports, so you don't, of course, you'd never throw your team to the wolves that way, but... Uh, there was the thought that it's it's it is to the ref to call, and I guess I would say that it just happens so quickly, and you have the cadence of the the, the double bounce. But anyway, though that may have happened, I don't overstate that because it's only it only happened a couple times. But balancing that is that they did not get in because partly because the court was a little wider, they did not get in embroiled in, the, in one of the horror shows that people who are well-versed in the ancient history of hardball squash, I hate to say it, but that's what it is, with some nasty matches I saw at all sorts of levels. I, I say nasty matches that I saw in a you know, championship context or in a, a B-singles context. Oh, okay. Yeah, right, where there's not much at stake. 
but that didn't stop people from coming to fisticuffs. In, in part because the court was so narrow that you, you just had less room to maneuver? Is that what you were saying? Yeah, that's right. It, it, it would seem strange now. You see occasional bits, but the ball is moving fast, and the court is smaller, so kind of what do you expect? It's going to happen. And I think there was a period where people, people felt, oh, we should be more strict on the stroke, look what they do in the softball, and I'm thinking, well, the softball is played on a court that's two and a half feet wider, and it's softer, and it's a, it's a big difference. So that, uh, that alone meant it shouldn't be adjudicated in the same way. But you often had uh, two, two things, I would say. One, you had to do things very quickly. The lighting wasn't always there. The perspective on the, uh, wasn't always there. Not so much if you go down low, then, then the double bounces are much easier, but then you have no idea really how close somebody is in terms of moving to the front wall. Yeah. And so uh, are they calling lead on a ball that they're about to reach or, or is it actually two feet ahead of them and you can't quite make it out from that angle? And if you get a little bit of height in the picture, then that would be resolved more quickly. And that's right. why there's no right. single uh, place that, that, that's, that's best, right. I, at least in my, right. in my experience. Right. Actually, you know, I've got another one. Uh, we've mentioned if you open the door. I was repping a women's A final in a local tournament uh, at a club in Boston. And I was a little bit nervous about it because I didn't know them. I didn't know their styles, either individually, as in how fast can they run, or uh, the relationship between the two of them. I sensed that there may have been a little bit of history there to which I was not privy, and maybe I should have known. And all I remember, well, two things. One is that it, it was one of the matches that where the one person went up two zip and the tide eventually turned and went five agonizing games. But before the match started, I had noticed that there was this little, uh, we're on radio here, I, there, there's this little thing of rope, but I don't know what it was, but it, it was from a hook. It started just off court. It was maybe kind of near the cut line. And, you know, for those of you who don't know, of your listeners who don't know the hardball court, it wasn't a continuous downward sloping line. It, you know, it, it, it was a vertical line. So somewhere out of court was the beginnings of this rope, but it hung down into the court by like a few inches. What club this? This was the, the squash club at Alston. Yeah. I'd never noticed it before, but all of a sudden, I'm refing this match. and I, So I, I take time out. I said, by the way, if the ball hits that rope, we'll take a let. And, and, and in theory, if, if somebody else were playing, uh, I, I can think of um, uh, some, maybe if Gary Waite was hitting it and, and it was on the rise, it's probably going out of court. But I felt that it would be hit not in that way. And wouldn't you know it, we're at like two all, ten all, and somebody hits a serve into the rope. And they look at me like, the world has just ended. Like what? <laughs> and then everybody remembers. I settle down. We've covered that. And and I, it was just an. Aw I, I'm literally announcing their names, and and I see this rope, uh, and and I, I should say strand is, before people get the uh, conjure up the image of something uh, much bigger than it actually was. It, you could have played fifty matches in that court and not hit it, but they hit it square. So. No problem. Play left. So that was maybe that was, I, that, that was the highlight of my refereeing career. There you go. Well, that that club wasn't that. It was in an old um, Pierce Arrow um, uh, factory or something. There was something unique about that club. That's right. Right, and that was maybe from that era when it wasn't a squash court but a, a car. It was a vestige of something, and I don't know yeah. what. Yeah, it, it had been a, a car factory or a dealership, or there. Yeah, I don't. You know, it's a good question. I don't know what its prior history was because I ended up playing there for for several years. I belonged to diff different, you know, played out of different places during my years in Boston. And I, by the way, I was in Boston for, but I've been in, in Charleston, South Carolina, for the last six years. Pretty much everybody thinks I'm still in Boston. They say, "How are things in Boston?" And I say, "I think things are good in Boston." You know, I, I you know, I guess they're just asking for my perspective. What, what am I to make of this? Uh, but I played there, uh, this was that we'd go back to the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. And the courts were paneled courts, which, which was kind of new then. And they were loud. 
they were really loud to the point of feeling untrue. And was that a tin? Was that a tin? Uh, they also, come to think of it, had, and these of course were hardball courts. I emphasize, uh, they, they eventually had put in four international courts years and years ago. It was a long time ago that they did that. But they had, they, the facility housed four international courts, but at one time it had nine hardball singles courts laid out in a row, each one as noisy as the next, and boy, you get activity or a tournament, and it was just, uh, it was just a, a madhouse. But I, I also remember, uh, you know, everybody, every squash player is familiar with the concept of hitting a ball down the rail, but it hits the crack and it bounces out funny. And it's usually bad stuff happens. In fact, I think uh, last night in the SL Green final, Andrew Douglas did that on two successive points. And I don't know whether they were strokes. They were, they, were, they were both strokes, right? So he said, boom, boom. So he hits that crack. Well, uh, I was playing uh, just a practice match, and there was a gap there. And it... it it was the sort of thing in hardball you could hit and it would affect the flight of the ball. But the ball was hit, the, the, the softball was hit, and it stuck. <laughs> in the court. Yeah, it just stuck. And that's another ground was like, I, I, think we, I think we play a lot here. Yeah. We'd still be waiting probably. Well, I, of course, they, the courts were torn down. So if I, within, when the courts were torn down, that ball would have finally disappeared. That's funny. Yeah. That's unusual. It, I've I, never heard of that happening. Yeah, uh, that it, it happened. I can guarantee that it happened. Which which side? Right it was the four. It was the right wall. I guess it was the right wall. It was just stuck. Yeah, well, wouldn't wouldn't uh, happen again. Uh, so Derek, you uh, wrote a lot for Squash News in the nineteen eighties. Uh, yeah. Do you have any memories of, of being a, a squash journalist and, and writing about the game? Yeah, I do. Uh, again, this was uh, something that I did. Uh, this sort of began, a, uh, I guess, a career of writing in, in that I then did some financial writing. I worked at, by way of background, I was at um, my last years in the investment business, although I started in Boston as a, a numbers guy, getting my uh, uh, doctorate in mathematics. Uh, I became progressively qualitative, and believe it or not, it was those, the suggestion, as I recall, uh, of Tom Poor or maybe Lenny, uh, or, the, or the committee in concert say, could you write this up? And uh, I, th- I think I eventually wrangled some money out of Squash News uh, because it was a professional service, the, the likes of which, in other words, it was, it was now we we're venturing a little bit away from the volunteer service. <laughs> My refereeing, I got, I, I, I got paid what I deserved. I'll put it that way. <laughs> but it was all in the spirit of things. Uh, in this case, I began with little articles in Squash News and they became longer as I thought about uh, you know, having to cover an entire tournament. But I, I, uh, to, to fast forward just for a moment, I, I then, writing, which was foreign, I avoided English courses like the plague in college, uh, but I, I've written, I ended up writing a couple of investment books, a few books on mathematics and puzzles. Well, the one book you did with David Boyum. And, right, exactly, What the Numbers Say, a, a quantitative reasoning book that David Boyum and I, and if your audience doesn't know David, he was a great, great player in the 80s, about 10 years younger than I or so at a Harvard mid-80s, and he and I uh, sort of conjured up a book on a street corner. And, uh, in fact, it, was not, it wasn't just any street corner. I think it was Vanderbilt and 44. Fourth, maybe right it was the yoga. right outside the yoga. It was somewhere, somewhere in there. I think it was on Vanderbilt. But David might remember, but I was doing a book tour at uh, uh, Barnes and Noble in, in Manhattan, and David was nice enough to, you know, get my flyer and actually attend. So, so that was nice of him. And uh, he had had this, these thoughts on quantitative reasoning that we shared. And so, so that yes, it was in the Squash family. Yeah, I was embarrassed. He's the only guy I, I could co-write a book with and and be clearly the lesser squash player. <laughs> That's the way it was. Uh, anyway, uh, so I went on to, to do those things, but there's one thing that I do remember about writing about squash is that you can't write about squash. In other words, you can't say, 
okay, it was then a big point. It was thirteen twelve. Well, I think we understand that's a big point. And, and he, they were a lot of shots, and they were. He made a great get, and and he won the point because it just, it, you know, and and literally this is the problem with squash that endures even with videos. You can't appreciate the goodness, if you will, of a good get. And you certainly, it doesn't translate to print. So you can talk about it all you want. It's presumed. It's presumed. You're talking about, we're talking about the level of play. These guys can cover court, and that's the whole point. And so even if I were writing up the match last night, which I wouldn't, I might have certain things to say, but it wouldn't be about any particular get unless it was it turned something time but even then the description would have to be it would have to be unusual but you can talk about the players you can talk about the dynamics between the two players you can talk about um, well I've, even in this conversation today we've talked about unusual things that have happened and those are absolutely fair game and I think that those are what the readers want to hear. Right. You know, right. this is squash news. This isn't this isn't something that's that people are reading the day after the the event happened. Right. We have a lag time at both ends. You know, yeah. usual publication lag time right. that we all were accustomed to back then. And well, of course, in squash magazine, there's a there's a, a you know a comparable yeah. uh, lag time just that's right. just because that's the nature of it. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, I enjoyed uh, working with uh, Tom and Hazel. But, you know, I remember uh, also there was a little piece I wrote for Squash News, which was a tribute. It was called A Tribute to Hunt Welch. And Hunt Welch was my neighbor in Connecticut. And he was a pretty good squash and tennis player in his own right. And I guess they qualified as our next-door neighbor, but in rural Bethany, Connecticut, you couldn't see their house. Right? There was a big woods in between. It was you know, through the woods on a snowy evening to, to get there. Uh, but uh, he wasn't, uh, I don't want to overstate, he wasn't a mentor. I, I wouldn't call him my mentor, but, but we did play, when I was young, plenty of times tennis and squash, when he was a whole lot better than I was. So that is, fits a definition of mentorship. But anyway, he died uh, somewhat tragically. Uh, you know, he, he died um, in a water accident. He, he, drowned, he contracted pneumonia. He basically drowned. Uh, he, he, he lived for a while, and he was 70, and he was uh, doing some different form of body surfing, and something, he caught water, and he never recovered. And so I wrote, uh, I did a little write-up for um, Squash News, that I know his widow Sue and, and his sons uh, Duncan and Tom and, and a daughter Hilly appreciated, but um, as it turns out, uh, his widow was the sister of John Chafee, who was then the senator from Rhode Island. And a squash player. And a squash player, exactly right. And so I remember getting a call from uh, Hazel, not long, not much of a lag time after it was published. I, I may, may have just received it. And she said somewhat breathlessly, and if you know Hazel <laughs> and her style, she's, she's sort of a, she was Diane Rehm before there was Diane Rehm, right? <laughs> so she was a little breathless. She said, oh, Senator Chafee's office just called, saying how appreciative they were of the article, which I'd just done because by this time I had some street cred with Tom and Hazel, and I said, you know, I'd like to do this, and they said, sure, and they made the space. Don't, don't close this. It locks automatically. From the inside. Yes. Thank you. And, and, and so, so that's I, so neat. They appreciated it. So, yeah, I, 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 they, they were, Tom and Hazel were willing to do it. They got feedback right away, and I, I, I immediately, this didn't surprise me. I actually hadn't put two and two together, but it made perfect sense, of course. Yeah, uh, John Chafee's office would have would have, seen it, yeah. would have would have seen it, and I don't know if he called. It may have been a staffer who who made the actual yeah. call, but it said you know whoever wrote the article clearly knew Hunt, and that 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 was true. That was true. Perhaps not in the sense that they would have imagined, uh, because I was a kid. I was roughly maybe a couple years older than his children. I wasn't a peer, uh, but I was happy to have done that. Happy for Hazel that. They got the uh, recognition from from yeah. this piece, and but uh, your your I don't know if it's your most famous piece, but uh, in in writing the history of U.S. squash, I 
I, you know, read all your articles that well, I, or a lot of them. Aren't you dozens. nice? <laughs> and uh, you were very helpful with the, the 1984 Boston Open, which was a, a big moment uh, that we've talked about. But I, I recall very well, I, I don't know if this is the one that you remember the most, but the one I remember the most is what you wrote in 1990 about the, ha- the Harvard-Yale matches. Oh, of course, yes, yes. Uh, right, I was saying 90, that's a little bit late, but yeah, 90, in fact, I was just talking with John Musto, who's, who's here, and uh, he was a part of uh, those teams, uh, and when I say those teams, the issue was the streak. And I talked about the 1976 Harvard-Yale match, and we lost 6-3, and I think I mentioned, well, you know, that was actually not bad at the time. They always, they just, they just kicked our ass, uh, you know, uh, the pure and simple. And I think, uh, and of course, I was, a, I was a classmate at Yale with Rob Dinnerman, who was, all the, who was a great historian of the game, as, as we all know. And he had, we had a conversation. He and I used to talk all the time when we had hardball tournaments to talk about. Now, it's, it's less so. We, we teamed up in doubles once upon a time a few years ago, but uh, we talked about the fact that not only was Harvard beating up, but they were doing a 9-zip. You know, it just wasn't close. And when I won my match, I think it was the first time that, that uh, Yale number one, apropos of Skillman's comment <laughs> that <laughs> I was beating the worst guy, just they, they lost. And, and it had been years since a, a, a Harvard, number one, a Harvard number one had lost. And it didn't happen again until John Musto. And he reminded me that he played Darius Pandol. And I, I was talking about the match where he beat Mark Baker yeah. at number one. That's and right. uh, the, the, I, I did twofold. One, I wrote about the streak, which was poised to end at Hemingway Gym with the Musto team. Musto played Johnny Bernheimer. And John uh, Musto had just reached the semis, I believe, of the Nationals in Princeton, right? Speaking of Jadwin. Well, it's amazing how these places are coming back in a conversation. I really haven't thought of them that that often. But John Musto had a great tournament. He lost in the semis. Had a couple good wins, obviously. But he was a little depleted. And... Uh, he he didn't like manage his fluids. I don't know. He he just was still. This was a Tuesday evening in Cambridge, after the weekend, and maybe you can say that oh that's plenty of time to bounce back. But but he, he didn't. And John Bernheimer beat him in something of an upset uh, at number one and just kept the pressure on. John Bernheimer was a quality player. Don't don't get me wrong. He did win an an NCAA title, uh, but he wasn't a great. Harvard number one, maybe better than the one who I beat. <laughs> but but um, he was a solid player yeah. uh, uh, in w- with both balls because he became a, a, a decent softball player. Remember, we we're playing still on the narrow courts at that time. But he won them, and that sort of set the tone, and that was considered a big upset, if you can imagine. So it was twenty. The, the streak was at twenty-seven. <laughs> so it was 27 and 28 those, those were the years uh, that, that, that's the length that we're talking about and I wrote this up because it was a it was a big deal match I had gone to it hoping that Yale would, would break the streak but feeling that you know I, I, it's still worth a write up it really the streak itself yeah. and I part of me felt bad about doing so because I wasn't trying to rub anything in that wasn't the purpose it was just newsworthy and it was a tremendous disappointment for Dave Talbot and John Musto, I'm sure. And I, I hope they didn't think, well, what's, what's, what's Niederman doing in class of 76? Just rubbing the, you know, our law, yet another loss. And, and, I, and I, I actually can, can genuinely appreciate that sentiment if anybody had it. You know, it, it's, it's legitimate. But I, I took the opportunity the following year when uh, Yale won in New Haven. Were you there? And I was there, yes. I was there for the, the uh, Musto-Baker match, uh, which uh, Musto ended with one of his little sidewall fronts that he, he used to hit with a hard ball. Uh, at least that's my memory. Maybe JB could tell you otherwise. But uh, 
So that match went Yale's way, so I felt obliged to write a follow-up article, even though we just heard, the, it was sort of weird, I hear you tell the, one year I tell you about the streak, and maybe, maybe you didn't know it, and the next year it's over. Oh, by the way, it's over. The whole idea was to write about the streak that was over, but I was. it took me 12 months two years. To, to, <laughs> right before it, it came to pass. Yeah, no, that was an epic moment, and, and, and kind of a watershed moment for Harbaugh. That was one of the last moments before we that's exactly right yeah that's it would would have been that group of players who then maybe freshmen that would would, would play softball by the end of it well i remember that an early match ended and i don't know whether this was the um uh johnny bernheimer musto match on court one of the the one beside i think jack colburn was playing for harvard was playing he's now in, in london i think uh and it ended early. One of those, the court was empty soon. And I remember it being sort of a feeling like, boy, this, you know, meet the old boss, meet the new boss just like the old boss. What, what, nothing has changed here. And I remember writing for the, for the Eli's or something that the vacancy probably felt as. Well, as welcome as one at the, as at the Bates Motel. <laughs> I remember that. So there again, I'm not talking about the squash. Right. I just that's, that's how it felt. It was like, boy, it's happening again. That's a good line. And well, thank you. But sure enough, and by the way, it wasn't just Yale who. I remember Bobby Callahan coming with his Prince, one of his Princeton teams. I remember the look on his face when he finally turned the corner. Remember, he's watching many matches. He finally turns the corner to watch. Jeff Stanley get absolutely blown out by a Darius Pandole who was super sharp and unable to believe or comprehend what he was witnessing because he first he sees one point, then he sees another point, and then now he's looking around for the score. Maybe something, maybe it was me. I was flashing two zip. So Yale wasn't the only team to have gone down to miserable, unexpected, heartbreaking, whatever you want to call it, defeat in Hemingway Gymnasium. So no one is shedding a tear at, uh, from those schools at its demise. It was a tough place to play, and they knew how to play. And, and that's where I, I, I got uh, aced with Jeff Wygant's chip serve back in 1973, <laughs> so Amazing. proving the point. Uh, lastly, and we, we touched on this a second ago, um, you're one of the world's experts about squash and mathematics. Is that right? Well, you have to be. So. Oh, oh, is this? I, 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 <laughs> because I'm, no one else is competing? Yeah, exactly. I don't know. Anyway, I mean, you've written books about it, you, you, you've thought about it, and you play the game. So tell me a little bit about the intersection between squash and mathematics. Oh, boy. We know it was Jay Nelson, actually, who talked first about the, the geometry of squash, of squash going back to the hardball days. And what we were talking about, we were talking about squash and tennis. And as I mentioned, I played both in college. I still play some tennis, but not, uh, I don't compete, for example. I don't compete in the 60 and overs. So we were talking about the geometry of squash uh, and, and what it uh, had to offer above and beyond tennis. But I think the, uh, the mathematics of, uh, of squash would be not merely geometry. It, it boils down to arithmetic. I mean, think about how many times in the conversation we've had, we're talking about leads. We're, we're talking about leads that got away, for example. But, uh, you know, some of it is pretty simple, which is that if you... I remember it was also Jay Nelson who was talking about beating Jerry Fulton a year ago and reminding himself after every point, exhorting himself for the next one. Because these these points that you lose to go down 5-3, games often get away there, and you haven't put in the controls to do so. And so you, you have to remind yourself that the game is, you know, uh, it's composed of, of increments, and each one is as important as the next. The 13-12 the, the point will be the one that lives on in people's memory, but often it's the uh, it's often the five three point where you where you lose the damn game, you know. And I can speak from recent experience on the, on that very subject. That's not mathematics. That's that's arithmetic. I, I, I hasten to add, 
But uh, the one more cosmic uh, comparison association has to do with the, uh, the fact that there, we talked about with the softball, different styles of play. Again, I'm dating myself. Well, why I say with the softball, listeners might say, as opposed to what? You know, a shuttlecock? You know, but uh, the things that you can do to change the tempo of the game, and those lend themselves to a different geometry. And I was having this discussion with John Musto just last night about the use of the uh, top few feet of the court the arc of the ball for an ideal lob and the fact that people need to hit higher to achieve the height, obviously, but then the arc. So, and, and we eventually, the conversation, the way it went was, the height is the most important thing. And if something great happens with the sidewall back there, that's gravy, right? But, but you're first and foremost getting out of trouble with a, mentor, with a measured shot on which you can depend and which you've practiced and drilled enough to, to you know, feel confident in that dependency. And now you're saying, okay, and if something even better happens, great, but I'm, a, I'm resetting at the, at the very least. So I think th there's something mathematical about that because after mm -hmm. all you have a box, but now you're, you're elevating the box. Yeah. And the way the conversation was going was that you know, points seem to end with nicks and something sensational, or an error or interference or something less than sensational, but the, the importance of the top few feet of the court uh, is, hasn't been given the, the recognition that it is due, and it's the opinion of more than one person and, and more experienced voices than mine at, at this very event that it's it, we have the new trend. It's the proper use of that that space, which is there. And I'm talking from a facility that has many many feet above the red line. So not a, we're not all blessed that way. But you can. I'm going to go back and work on my lob, and with the goal of I was trying to hit the ceiling today with my lobs, and I never came close. So doesn't that tell you that maybe I had the court measured wrong the whole time? I, I think it does. <laughs> Wow, that's neat. That's totally neat. Well, I mean, you've just uh, you've thought a lot about about math and and um, in the book you you and David did, and, and uh, it's um, you know in the end it is a game of math. It, you know, we're at, we're adding up. Uh, well, I can tell you one more. Not not interrupt, but I can tell you one more that's very different. It's about and and David wouldn't be here to to say it, but it's about basics and mastery of the basics and. Quantitative reasoning, and, and this is the time to distinguish mathematics in its higher, highest and most abstract form from the bread and butter work of quantitative reasoning that we need in our everyday lives that became the basis of the what the numbers say that David and I co-wrote, where maybe I did most, maybe I did more than 50% of the writing and he did more than 50% of the inspiration, you know, because he had this really thought out and he had a uh, a great squash mind as well, but it wasn't a squash mind that was uh, uh, the equivalent of solving Fermat's last theorem. It was okay. Here I am. Here's where I have to stand. Where are you standing? You know, as an as an opponent, do I under do I know where you're standing? And it, it, he had a sense of mastery of the basics before you get into the the stuff that people will remember. Right. And even the brilliant stuff that you see, and we've, we've just watched the Millman-Hughes match where we're, we're seeing stuff come out of nowhere, but it comes out of somewhere. And where it comes out may be as simple as a, a, a great squash player who took the racket back. Well, who, whoever thought of that? Take the racket back. That's where it began. And with the racket prepared uh, came options, and it's options that somebody who's more rushed uh, just doesn't have. So I, I think of quantitative reasoning and does, does this factor cause a number to go up or does it cause a number to go down? You know, it could be in investments, it could be in, in economics, it could be anything. And if you understand those mechanics, then you're, you're on your way to the relevant mastery. And if you want to throw in some frills, well, by all means, good luck, but not right away. Awesome. 
All right. Anything else? I, I think chat. I think I'm done. I, I'm delighted to chat the, with you, Jim. Uh, this has been fun. Journalist and referee. I mean, it's like <laughs> you know, the squash journalism in America is, doesn't have a long, uh, <laughs> illustrious history. But you're, you're well, I'm glad to be part of it, and I'm glad that you are, and I'm delighted we had the yeah. chance to talk. Thanks, Derek. Okay, you bet. If you're listening on SoundCloud, um, thanks for uh, liking and uh, and following and commenting. Um, that's great. If you're on Apple Podcasts, um, thanks for uh, rating and and most importantly writing those reviews. Uh, thanks for all your all your support on that. Outside the glass would like to thank our producer Grant Irvin, our social media manager Lorel Holly, and all our loyal listeners who have reviewed and rated the podcast, shared their enthusiasm for it on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and most importantly, have spread the word by talking about Outside the Glass with their squash buddies.